Uh, all right. Well, welcome back, everyone. And welcome again, everyone who's watching us uh, on Facebook and YouTube today. And um, this is, as I was telling the boys, uh, the first Sunday in Lent. It feels, time just feels like, I don't know if it's been, the last year's been super slow or super fast. It's just kind of, it's been a lot of Groundhog Day is kind of what it felt and feels like. You know, every day is exactly like the next. Um, but we are already at Lent again, 40 days before Easter. And so this year what I'm going to do for Lent is I'm going to do a sermon series where we walk through the passion story of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And it's a series idea. I did this, I think, in maybe 2018, 17, something like that. And I walked through the Gospel of Matthew during Lent, or at least the passion story in Matthew. And uh, it's only the arrest and the trial. The crucifixion, will. I, we are still saving that for Good Friday. But um, why do I do this? My reasoning is that every year, as we go through our church year, we get to Holy Week, and then we have Palm Sunday, and so Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and then we have Good Friday, and we put the whole arrest, trial, crucifixion, burial in one service on one night. We squish this whole thing into one night, and then we have Easter. And yet, when you get into the Gospels, this is a big chunk of all four of the Gospels, and there's so much to the story there I just don't feel like we ever have time to do it justice and to walk through and to look at some of the complexity of it, to look at some of the different players and what are their motivations and what's going on um, and why was Jesus crucified? What are the things that led up to it? You know, I'm a big believer that there's, the gospel writers included so much of that story in each of their gospels when there were lots of other places where they'd say, and Jesus taught lots of other things and did many great things, and then he moved on. And you're like, well, that would have been nice. I would have liked to have known some of those great things. But when it comes to his arrest, his trial, we get that in a lot of detail. And so I like every few years to go back and just take another look at it, look at some of those details. Uh, what, who are the players? What are their complicated and mixed emotions and motivations? Because when you get into the story, you find that that story of Jesus it's not a very flat story. It often gets told as a very flat story. You know, he got arrested, he died for my sins, he rose. And you don't get all the different things going on. I think those dynamics matter, and I think you get a new appreciation for it, uh, a new appreciation of Jesus' death, and you get a chance to go so much deeper on it. And you know me, that's kind of my thing, right? I, I always like to go deeper with things. I want to a deeper faith, a deeper connection with God, a, a deeper understanding and connection with the scriptures. I think you get more out of it when you go into it a little bit more. So this series is going to be maybe a little bit more Bible study-ish because uh, I, I need to get into a little bit more background, but I promise you I won't just leave it there. This will not just be a big history lesson. Uh, we'll start with the background and then each week we'll move a little bit more into the foreground, you know, sort of ways to reflect on what we've read and implications of it. So, and one last thing uh, before we get started, uh, why did I pick the Gospel of John? Why his version? Uh, I picked it, the guy, last time I did Matthew's version, uh, this year I'm picking John. John's version is a lot longer than the others. It takes a lot more ink, it's more chapters, and there's a lot more dialogue to it. Jesus is talking more. 
there's more response. You know, in Mark, when he's in front of Pilate, he says nothing. In John, there's a whole, like, debate going on. And, uh, again, to try to squish all that into one night. So I thought it would be uh, a little bit more to dig into. So, all right, here we go. John 18. This is in your bulletins, but I'm going to read through for those of you who are watching again at home or maybe watching just the sermon. Uh, so, starting at verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. All right, so here's our scene, right? They're they're outside the city walls. So if you picture Jerusalem the way it was, you had the city, its walls, there was a valley, it it was a wash. I never understood what washes were as a kid growing up in the Midwest, you know. They, They kept talking about all these rivers on the maps with dotted lines. I'm like, why do they have dotted lines? What river doesn't flow all the time? Then I moved to Arizona, and the answer is most of them. Right? So the Kidron Valley is a wash like that. And so there they are at night. So in the city, they're in the day, doing, they're in the day, they're in the city. They go out over this valley up to a garden. Now in John, it's interesting, it doesn't say it was an olive garden. Um, but we know why Jesus went out there because when you're at the olive garden, okay, I couldn't resist. All right. But it doesn't say that, actually. It just says it's, it's a garden. So it's a place Jesus and his disciples used to go. So you get a sense that there's some frequency, that this was a common thing, this back and forth. I've always wondered, uh, you know, how much Jesus really intended to, to get killed and how much he maybe hesitated on it. Or maybe he knew it was coming, but he wanted to prolong how long it would be. Um, because, you know... He says over and over that he's going to die, that it's necessary that he die, but he doesn't just go right into town and throw himself at the Romans. I mean, if all you wanted to do was die at the Romans' hand, you walk up to a soldier and you punch him and they kill you. That's the end of the story. But Jesus didn't do that. He goes in and he goes into the city and he, what does he do? I mean, he causes a stir and he does this teaching and he's got these crowds, he does this healing, but then at night he grabs the disciples, they duck out and go hide. And that's not the behavior of somebody who's hell-bent on dying quickly. That's the behavior of somebody who's being kind of strategic about this and thinking about it and maybe isn't quite ready to go down yet. Uh, And, of course, he comes to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover to do all this. And at the time of the Passover, thousands of pilgrims poured into Jerusalem And so the Romans got nervous there would be a riot. So then they poured thousands of soldiers in it. So you had this really just hot tension kind of environment. You don't go into that kind of an environment if you don't want to get in the middle of a problem. So Jesus' motivation seemed to be working at many levels here. He seems to be a person who knows his fate but maybe isn't quite ready for it. Um, That's why the Romans didn't know where to find him. That's why they had to go to Judas to find, where, to find his location. So then what does it say? Here comes Judas, and he's got Roman soldiers and priests and Pharisees and guards. Holy mackerel, they're bringing the whole kit and caboodle. They bring the family dog with them too. I mean, it's like 
and they're all marching up this hill. Everybody's there. And you go, why all the weapons? Why the guards? Why so much force? Well, if you think you might have resistance, if you think this might be some sort of potential uprising, it makes sense that you bring force. Right? I mean, we do that with policing too, right? You're going to make a raid on the drug dealer's house, and you know there's a bunch of people who might have a bunch of weapons. You don't send one or two cops in. You send in a whole SWAT team, right? You overwhelm them to minimize the resistance. So that's what I think they were doing. Send in a huge squad of people. And for whatever reason, the priests themselves wanted to see Jesus arrested. I've never quite understood that. Um, and, but it also is true, the thing we kind of forget, is that Jesus' disciples, some of them, actually were members of violent revolutionary groups. Uh, some of them were militants dedicated to overthrowing Rome, including Judas and Simon Peter. They were both in militant groups, what we'd call extremist groups today, nationalist groups. But they were both in those groups before they met Jesus. And we kind of forget that. You know, Peter gets drawn so nicey-nicey. They don't draw Peter as the revolutionary or Judas as the guy with the dagger in his cloak who used to run around and assassinate Roman collaborators. That's what Iscariot means. So he was a killer. These were, interestingly, peace-loving Jesus had some not very peace-loving people and his disciples. And maybe they were struggling with it all too. Either way, it makes sense that the Romans would bring more guards. All right, let's keep going. Verse 4, chapter 18, verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked, Whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, Whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Okay, this is a little confusing. Why Jesus makes this big point of identifying himself. But you see in verse 8, it says, Jesus looks and says, let these men go. Which means they had been taken. That the guards came in and they captured everybody. And then Jesus identifies himself. So maybe, they didn't, maybe Jesus was hiding behind all the rest. And he comes up and he says, I'm the one you want. Let, these, let them go, which is you know, interesting question. I've never, I don't, I've never heard anyone give a good answer to, which is why Rome didn't just capture and kill all of them. That was a normal MO for Pilate. Uh, that was a normal Roman way of dealing with what they thought was an insurrection. Uh, but for some reason, they let all the disciples go. Jesus said, let them go, and they're like, okay, sure, fine. And this is where it gets interesting. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. How many people does it take to arrest a 33-year-old homeless guy? I don't know. Apparently a lot. So Simon Peter, the zealot, the militant, the revolutionary, 
in that moment of confrontation, the one he's been preparing for for years, the one he's been talking about with his buds, boy, when they come for me, I'm going to get them. And he's been bragging and bragging. The revolutionary who's plotted the uprising takes out his sword in the heat of the moment and cuts off the slave's ear. Talk about choking. Why the slave? What did he do? Why not a Roman guard? You know? The slave is the one person in that entourage who really had no choice at all about being there. He's just following orders under threat of death. So that's who you swing your sword at, Mr. Revolutionary Guy? But this guy, this Malchus is his name, he's an easy target. He's a soft target, right? Probably unarmed, not covered in plate armor with multiple weapons like the soldiers. All that rage, all that fear, and in the heat of the moment, all he can do is take out the slave's ear. But isn't that how it goes? I mean, we get angry, and what do we do? We, 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 we vent our anger at soft targets. We take things out on the ones least likely to fight back. We beat up on the ones who won't beat us back. And we dump our anger at our loved ones, our frustrations about politics, we dump on our friends, our fears and our hurts, we dump on our fellow community members and church members. It's human nature. We dump on soft targets, the ones who didn't do it. Because uh, you know, if you go home and complain to your wife about the boss, that's a lot safer for your pension than going to the boss and complaining about the boss, right? We know this. It's a form of scapegoating, right? Pouring out the violence on the animal that doesn't have the choice to fight back. This is what's going to happen to Jesus, right, in a couple more days. But for now, this is Malchus. He's the beginning of it. Malchus is not the lamb who has slain. He's more the lamb who got his ear cut off. But he's innocent, and he gets punished for it. The world is not a fair world. It should be the big and the powerful who suffer the injustices because they're the ones who cause it. But again, if you could just take out the big and the powerful, they wouldn't be the big and the powerful. The ones who do the hurting are usually the last to feel the effects, right? The dictator dies the natural death at home, surrounded by family. The, the, the Wall Street Short seller bankrupts the company, and he walks away with millions somehow. You know, the trader who sold leveraged credit default swaps based on bondage, bundled insured mortgages, oh yeah, he gets a bonus because he's contractually obligated to get one even if the company fails. And who do we get mad at? Who do we get mad at? Whoever we can yell at who won't hit back. The one thing you see in the passion story of Jesus and the story of this arrest in this trial is that you see over and over that the world is not fair and the bad guys don't get their due and karma doesn't happen. Instead, what you see over and over is the bad guys get away with it and the good guys like Jesus, they get the brunt of it. So Jesus, he gets punished 
while Caesar builds another palace and Pilate builds a seaside vacation house. Actually, a lot of Pilate's house is still there. You can Google it. Sitting up there on the coast of Lebanon. Beautiful rock outcropping with great views. It's something, you know, that a kindergarten teacher and a, and a homemade soap seller would buy on HGTV and complain that the mosaics weren't the right color. Oh, it's nice. It's even good enough for them. No, but this is what happens, right? The bad guys, they get bigger houses, nicer living, and the priests, they, they live to old age. We got the records of it. The priests who convicted Jesus, they live to old age, and they pass the priesthood down to their lazy, spoiled sons who continued to pass it to their sons. They lived on in wealth and privilege for generations, and nothing happened to them. The world was not fair. This is not the Hollywood movie, you know, where something would happen to the bad guy in the end. Now, we, none of us, I think, would like that movie, right? How many of us would really want to watch The Little Mermaid if, you know, whatever squid woman just ruled over everyone and everything turned black ink and, and the mermaid died and everyone died and we all just were depressed and that was the end of it? That wouldn't be a Disney movie. That would be a Swedish movie. I say that as a Swede, so. I watched The Seventh Seal, and then I didn't want to watch anything again for a week. But that's how the world, that, that, that's what, part of what I think where the Bible's trying to tell us, is to highlight the injustice of all of it. The world is not fair even to God. And what you will see in this passion story over and over is that it's not just that Jesus happened to be good and got caught up in it, but it's that it was because he was good that he got caught up in it. This is about power. The passion story is about power. Jesus is arrested, conviction, it's about powerful. It's about powerful Romans and powerful priests and powerful soldiers and powerful councils and powerful executioners dumping all the wrath of an empire on a 33-year-old homeless guy. Jesus knows his time is up, and he has no plans of starting a violent revolution. So what does he do? He tells Peter, put away your sword. And interestingly, Peter doesn't get arrested for that. Boy, you know, if I was Malchus, I'd be like, thanks, Caiaphas. Thanks a lot. You get that Jesus dude, I get my ear cut off, and you let him go? Wow, I'm so glad I brought you lunch this morning. Violence is not how the kingdom of God is going to be built, at least not by Jesus dishing it out. So think about this, some meditation for the week, some take-home, some reflection. Because, again, this is part of what I think Lent is about, right? It's a good time for Uh Reflect and try to be honest with God and ourselves. Think about times in your life when you've been frustrated, angry, feeling mad as heck, you know, and powerless to stop it. And think about what you did to, about it. What did you do? Did you dump it on your wife, your friends, your boss, your church? Did you dump it on God? Well, God can take it. Where did you put that powerless anger? Because when we are aware, 
of what we're doing. When we are aware that we're dumping on the people who don't fight back, we can begin to stop dumping on the people who don't fight back. Or when you have felt dumped on unfairly, when you were in the place of the slave of the high priest, who just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, did you turn to God in that moment? Know that, know that in whatever it's been, whatever it's been you go through, that Jesus has been through it. Whatever the injustice, whatever the unfairness, Jesus has been through it, he understands it, he knows it, and you are not alone in this journey with it. Amen.